Backbone, Bagpipe, Ballpoint, Bandwidth, Bankroll, Barky, Baseline, Bathrobe, Batman, Billboard, Blastoff, Bryson, Blueprint, those are words starting with the letter B, and I am your host, Jeremy Ullman. Welcome to Abstract. We are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research one episode at a time. Thanks for joining us today for episode 46. Enjoy. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, how did the universe begin? Where did it come from and where is it going? How far back can we look? What's the big idea with the cosmic microwave background? Why is gravity problematic? What's the goal of string theory? What about cosmic strings? Are they the key to unification? What's the big holdup on the grand unified theory of physics? These and many, many more questions to be answered on today's episode. Let's go. Bryce Sear is a senior PhD student in the Theoretical Cosmology Group at McGill University. His research aims are to unite some of the more abstract and speculative ideas about the very early universe, with observations being made with space and ground-based telescopes today. Lately, he's been working on whether cosmic strings can act as the seeds of merging black holes being detected by the LIGO-Virgo collaboration, as well as if a hypothetical new particle, called an axion, can leave an imprint on the cosmic microwave background, the oldest known light in the universe. Bryce's past research has included study on the nature of dark matter, and he's received numerous awards for his work, including being named a Vanier Scholar in 2019. He's originally from British Columbia, and also enjoys pondering the nature of the universe in a less professional manner with friends, often while enjoying a nice scotch. Well, I don't have any scotch on hand, but we're still going to discuss the universe. So without further ado, let's welcome Bryce to the podcast. Bryce, how's it going? It's great. I like how you already assume we're friends that would ponder the universe together. It's a really 100%. <laughs> I like to jump to conclusions, and then we can work backwards from those findings. No, I mean, that's a fair assumption with this one, I think. Awesome. Well, it is really nice to have you on the show. I've been waiting to have a discussion with a cosmologist for probably the latter half of my life. Early on in my academic career, I wanted to become an astrophysics professor, and I dropped out of physics about five years ago. So that dream is gone, but I can now live vicariously through you. So thank you for being here. That's what I'm here for. So first of all, you study the early universe. Yep, that's correct. What is the current most plausible theory about the early universe, according to you? Well, I mean, that that uh, is a question that depends on a lot of different primers, right? I mean, first of all, what do you mean by early? Uh, the universe is very, very old. So different people in the field, astronomers versus cosmologists, would consider old to be very different. So that, I guess, is the first primer. But generally speaking, the further back you go, I wouldn't say the less plausible things become, but the data is so much less constraining. It's so much harder to actually rule out specific models based on observations, which is generally how physics works. Just because, you know, things that happened a long time ago, like most of that stuff is gone. Like, I don't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. And that's, that's pretty much gone. So in terms of the most plausible ideas, I guess there was a talk on these objects called cosmic strings that I talked about many times in the last few years which I think are relatively plausible in the sense that they're objects that we know have been able to form in other physical systems. 
systems that we can test in a lab under specific conditions. And they generally form when you have the universe transferring from one state of matter to another state of matter, which is something we also know happens here on Earth. Water turns to ice every single day, you put it in the freezer, and as the universe has cooled, many things have been able to change their shape and form in many ways. And a generic prediction of a lot of these models are that these weird objects known as cosmic strings could potentially form. So they're a great way to, to kind of look and probe the conditions of those earliest times in the universe where we're unable to actually get a telescope to look at it. It's just too far away. <laughs> right. It's interesting because first you said that the early universe was so long ago that like we can't even really observe it. But now you're saying that we do have these things called, which are theoretical, called cosmic strings, which would be like a remnant of some sort? Is, like, is that how we could think about them? Yeah, essentially it is, a, it is a remnant. When I say it's so hard to see the early universe, I guess what I mean in that context is directly, mm -hmm. like taking a telescope out and, and looking at space. What people have tried to do in the past is, you know, take a telescope and look at a completely dark portion of the sky and say, well... If it looks dark from here, maybe that's just because the light is coming from so far away and it's really faint. So maybe there's something out there. And when people do that, they do detect light. In fact, light coming from everywhere around us. This is what's known as the cosmic microwave background. But that actually acts kind of like a shield. It is very old light. It's about 13 billion years old itself. But the really interesting stuff happens before this cosmic microwave background forms. And the microwave background really acts kind of like a wall for observations. You can't see behind it. It's, it's like it's a veil that's hmm. behind that veil live a lot of very interesting theories that are difficult to test. And so one way to see beyond that veil is to look for remnants of phases that the universe may have existed in prior to the microwave background being formed, because those things could persist and still exist today, potentially sourcing black holes with uh, some of my recent research. So the thing that I like to do is find creative new ways to look beyond that veil of the microwave background. Without actually looking beyond it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit of a nuanced business for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what physics is, is doing at the highest level, is doing some very nuanced stuff. If it was simple, then we'd all be doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, we all, th we all like to talk about it at least. <laughs> sure, yeah. That's yeah. one of the things that I always loved about physics is that there are such large questions that we're trying to answer. You know, I, I think everybody, it's almost like a universal, pun intended, interest of human beings to be interested in the universe. And so I think it's a beautiful thing. Very frustrating, in fact, that the cosmic microwave background is this veil that is blocking our view from the early universe. I'm curious to know what problem do cosmic strings solve? At least from my knowledge, when we hypothesize or make theories, we're generally trying to come up with something that solves a problem or kind of fills a hole somewhere. What hole is that and what problem is that that cosmic strings fill and solve? Yeah, so in the context of physics at these highest energies, I mean, usually those are kind of synonymous terms. As you go back in time, the universe gets very hot. The average energy of a particle is very high because everything is moving very quickly in the, the hot plasma that exists. And the goal of high energy physics in general is to try and find kind of a unifying mathematical framework that we can say, starting from this one theory, we can describe everything that we see in the universe today. This ranges from all of the particles that exist to the different forces that govern nature whether that be electromagnetic or gravity or the nuclear forces as well. And so cosmic strings, I wouldn't say they fill a direct hole, but in this quest for unification, physics in general has, has really reached 
some pretty bad stumbling blocks. We've been able to unify three out of four of the fundamental forces of nature, but one of those forces, gravity, is still causing some major issues for us. It has been for a long time, and this is why people started to study uh, string theory. String theory was meant with its grand aim to be that unifying theory that describes everything that exists in the universe. And we haven't come to a conclusion on whether that's uh, going to be the case or not, even after 40 years of working on it. But what we do know is that there is unification in the laws of nature as you go to, to higher energy scales. And the way that that unification is broken, like today, I could say, describe to me what gravity is and describe to me what electricity is. And you would describe two very different things. Mm -hmm. But if you go back far enough in time, actually, those things are, are coming from one and the same theory. And so you wouldn't have such a distinction between them. But you're saying earlier in the universe, those forces were less distinct in the way they operated? Yeah, exactly. They, they were almost impossible to tell apart at some point. It's what? very, very <laughs> it's very funky. It's very cool. So not only does like all the mass converge into like a singularity, presumably, or at least one very small region, but also all the forces kind of collapse into one another and become yeah, one, one. Exactly. And, okay. And in fact, even if you look at experiments that are taking place today, um, like the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, mm -hmm. colliding particles together at extremely high energies, you know, in physics, we have a lot of math and equations, but one of the most important numbers that we put into our formulas is essentially the strength of interaction between particles. And so if I say I have an electron and a proton, they have a specific strength of interaction between them. But one of the great things that we've learned in the last 30, 40 years is that the strength of the force between two particles is actually different at different energies. And so the number that you plug in, you know, if you're trying to compute an electron and a proton doing something, you know, in your, in your bedroom, the number you plug in there is much different than the number that you plug in if you're colliding particles together at the Large Hadron Collider with these extremely massive energies. And so these fundamental numbers that govern the strength of interactions actually seem to all start to converge to the same number at some point when you go to high enough energies in the early universe. And so this is kind of what we mean by a unification. Oh, it's because of the energy. And so because we know that the early universe was very energetic, then presumably these forces were all acting the same way. This exactly. isn't like a function exactly. of the volume of the universe or, or just time itself. Yeah, I mean, not, not directly, right? Like if you take a box... Mm -hmm. and you have it at some temperature, so there's a bunch of gas floating around and you measure a temperature, it's like 10 degrees, and you compress that box and you make it smaller, those particles, they have less room to move around, right? So they bump off each other more often now, you've reduced the size of the box. They have more collisions, and more collisions actually means more heat. So the temperature goes up as the box gets smaller. So in fact, if you take the universe and pretend it's a big box, which effectively it, it might be, and you go back in time, you're really just compressing that box slowly and slowly. And so mm -hmm. at the very early times, you know, you still have all the stuff that we see today, you know, all the stuff that made up the stars in the entire universe, but you compress that into a very small box. It doesn't have much to do except hit each other and, uh, and <laughs> become very energetic. So it's not directly a function of the volume of the box, right? but the energies certainly go up as you go back in time, which is yeah. very exciting. I guess we can all call back to what we learned in high school of the uh, ideal gas law, PV equals nRT, where we have this, this inverse relationship between volume and temperature. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I always forget that, so maybe I should write that down. I might need that later. <laughs> Pivnert. That's what all of my life has been based on. It's just a whole bunch of Pivnert. But actually, maybe I didn't quite answer your first question. Sure. But we have this unification 
but it doesn't go all the way yet. You know, we haven't been able to unify gravity. And so cosmic strings could be a signal for the way in which the unification is broken from the top level down to the less unified scale. So as the universe goes from being this beautiful object that is described by one theory, say string theory, for example, it eventually, at the scales that we're talking about on Earth, has to be described by many different things, like we have theories for gravity and electromagnetism. Mm -hmm. And so we call that a breaking of the unification. And it's really the breaking of unifications that can form cosmic strings. So if we detect cosmic strings, we can have an idea as to the way in which the unification was broken, so that we could piece together what was the most plausible uh, description of the early universe, given what we see as a remnant of that past stage of, I guess, where we live. Okay, this is this is actually this is wonderful because I've I've thought about this question for a very long time about the kind of why it is that we haven't found this grand unified theory for all these fundamental forces, and the fact that you're saying like based on the conditions of the universe at any given time you wouldn't necessarily expect the unification to still operate. Maybe yeah. in the past there, there was this, this unification, but now there isn't because of the nature of the expansion of the universe. Yeah, exactly. That, that's almost exactly right. And that's also why a lot of us like to study early universe cosmology, because then you only have to learn one theory instead of like 800 <laughs> for the real physicists doing the hard work. Right. Although as an early universe cosmologist, it appears that your research is at least based on the reason for why you can't actually just focus on one theory because that doesn't hold over time. I guess somebody has to do the, the legwork, right? <laughs> yes. And thank you in advance, or I guess concurrently <laughs> for doing that. You did say something earlier about the cosmic microwave background. That I just want to loop back to for a second. You were talking about old light and how it's, at least when we look at the cosmic microwave background, we're seeing very old light. Does the nature of light change in any way over time as it travels through space? I know that it decreases in its energy, like it, it loses energy as it heads towards us from many billions of light years away. Is there anything else fundamentally about light that changes? So when we think of light, we think of something that has no mass and therefore is really just described by its energy and maybe its polarization as well. So the way in which it's um, spinning as the wave comes towards us. But the energy is really the only important quantity associated with the light. So I think what you touched on here is, is very important. In particular, you know, light is a wave. It has a wavelength, and those wavelengths are very small for the light that we see, at least in our own eyes. But as the universe expands, this, the universe isn't necessarily expanding outwards into some extra void that we don't quite understand. It really is like the space between things is expanding. So, I mean, you and I are presumably both sitting somewhere in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And since we've started this interview, the distance between both of us has expanded by the tiniest amount that we'll never be able to detect. But the space itself is kind of inventing itself as it spreads open. And the thing that happens with light is that energy is defined strictly by its wavelength and uh, the wavelength gets stretched as the universe expands. Mm. So yes, it loses its energy which is why most of the light that we see from the oldest sources in the cosmic microwave background happen to have a characteristic wavelength. Most of them are close to a specific wavelength mm -hmm. that is in the microwave, because that's why it's the microwave background. Mm -hmm. But light also suffers a lot of other issues as it comes towards us, right? Like the galaxy that we live in has a whole bunch of crap in it. As a cosmologist would say, I mean, an astrophysicist would say, that's the most beautiful thing that we can find is our galaxy. But to me, it's just noise. You know, it's just... It's fun crap. It's in the way. 
it's in the way and as the light from the microwave background which has all this useful information about the early universe comes towards us it gets polluted by being absorbed into other stars maybe it reflects off some meteors and planets on the way to us and not just our galaxy i mean as it travels through time it could travel through other galaxies and those galaxies have a gravitational pull as well and the gravitational pull of a galaxy also stretches the light so then you you see a, a photon or a particle of light and you say well is this stretching just due to the expansion of the universe or is it due to the expansion of the universe plus the fact that it's had to travel in and out of 15 galaxies on its way to me plus it bounced off some star that exists that doesn't exist anymore but it bothered me 400 million years ago I mean, there's a lot of complications to that. And so statistically, what we do is we look at trillions and trillions of these photons and take kind of an average to get our, right. our information. It's a good thing that there are a lot of photons, because if there weren't, it would be pretty much impossible to make sense of this complete jumble of interactions that we have to then kind of follow backwards to the initial source. I'm kind of imagining like a billion children sitting in a very large circle and one of them kind of forms a piece of Play-Doh into a, a particular animal shape and then passes it on to the next person. And even just by virtue of passing this Play-Doh, just by handling the Play-Doh, it comes back to the last person in the circle and they've got no idea what animal that Play-Doh started off as. Does that, does that ring true here? I mean, yeah. If you're just looking at one animal or one uh, photon, that's, that's pretty much exactly what would happen. Hyper, hyper simplified. No, but it's true. And there are other, other things that form a background like these photons that would give us great information, but they're not as plentiful and or they're much harder to detect. And so we actually just can't do anything with it. You want to drop what a couple of those are? Yeah, I mean, the there's these other particles in, in the universe called neutrinos, which are like electrons, except they're much lighter and they don't have an electric charge. <laughs> and by the fact that they don't have an electric charge means that they just don't care about anything. Like they don't interact with things. Like neutrinos can go straight through the earth without even noticing the earth was there. So that's what makes detecting these things so incredibly difficult. I mean, how do you get something to bounce off something in your detector when it's just as happy to go straight through the earth without touching anything? Mm -hmm. And there is a background of these neutrinos as well that, that would give us great information, just like the microwave background. But unfortunately, we detect maybe 10, 100 of these per year. Like we need trillions like per day there are not enough neutrinos to actually make sense of anything. Exactly. Hey, so I just finished my first audio course. It's called The Secret Life of Words, and I cover everything from the mental representation of language to how to resolve ambiguities and become a better communicator. It's jam-packed. I can guarantee you're going to enjoy some part of the course. You can access it via the link that I'm going to put in the description. The course is available on Listenable, and you can access the whole thing with a seven-day free account. I'm also going to put a link to a 30% off discount for a one-year membership. I'd love to know what you think about it. Honestly, it's been a really fun couple of months working on it, putting it together, and I'm just excited to have it out there for you to listen to. So have fun, enjoy, and thanks for the support. Okay. But there, there is, I guess, one other thing I can mention is uh, sure. in the age of the last couple of years, Gravitational waves have been a really exciting new field for astronomers and physicists. Yeah. And the beauty of gravitational waves is that, yes, they're very hard to detect, but unlike light, which bounces off stars and hits all the dust in between their source and us, gravitational waves, again, they're kind of like neutrinos. They don't care about any of that stuff. And so if you have a lot of gravitational waves that are formed in the very early universe, then 
what you actually detect, if you can manage to detect it, because it's a very weak signal, is not polluted with all of these other effects that make it so much more difficult to understand the microwave background. Because these gravitational waves, they, they don't care about the galaxies that form, they just pass straight through. I don't have to worry about anything uh, at all. And so you can get away with having much fewer of them and still being able to learn something about the early universe. This is just one of those things that I love about physics, which is that it's like the universe never makes it easy for us. They'll give us the really reliable gravitational waves, but they'll make the signal really weak. They'll give us an abundance of photons and make them interact with absolutely everything on their way over. Then they'll give us neutrinos, which are very difficult to detect. They're everywhere, but because we can't detect them, it's kind of useless. So it's, it's kind of like we always have to bring in all these different sources of information together and make sense of it. Yeah, I mean, it's like the world's biggest puzzle, right? <laughs> exactly. And one of the pieces of the puzzle, or rather one of the players, one of the people who's building this puzzle is the LIGO-Virgo collaboration, which you said you're part of. So what kinds of experiments are currently being undertaken using that collaboration, or within that collaboration? Okay, so maybe, maybe I should clarify, I'm not a part of the LIGO-Virgo collaboration. Got it. That being said, some of the work that I do aims to make predictions that the LIGO-Virgo team can either verify or reject. And so just to say a couple of words about LIGO and Virgo, it's a series of a few different gravitational wave detectors, which are these extremely long, very boring looking structures. And what happens is you have this, this very long, essentially tube that's a few kilometers long. And at the very end of it is this really weird um, assembly of mirrors and lasers. And what it's supposed to do is measure if any of the distances in this two kilometer arm stretch or compress seemingly out of nowhere. And the stretching and compressing of the arm of the detector out of nowhere can correspond to a gravitational wave that's passing through the Earth, because that's what gravitational waves do, is they kind of compress and expand the space between you and I, for example, mm -hmm. but by these extremely, extremely tiny, tiny amounts. Hence the weak signal you're talking about. Yeah, it's a very weak signal, and it's amazing that they can detect it in the first place. But the problem is that, you know, not only that, if you're on Earth, earthquakes that take place, if it's a large enough earthquake, can cause a bit of a rumbling within these mirrors that looks like a gravitational wave signal. I think there was also a report a couple of years ago that with one of the LIGO-Virgo detectors, they were able to feel the rumbling of some nation doing a, a nuclear test with the nuke actually going off somewhere. So that's crazy sensitivity. Wow. And their main purpose is to detect gravitational waves from what are called inspiraling black holes. So you take not just one black hole, but two black holes, and you put them next to each other. They'll spin around each other, but eventually they'll start to get a little bit too close to each other, and they'll start spinning extremely rapidly. And in this extremely rapid spinning phase, this generates like a huge amount of gravitational waves. And eventually these gravitational waves you know, as these black holes are merging, make it to Earth. And that's what LIGO and Virgo are, are detecting. And what they can do when they make a detection is they can say, okay, well, we can reconstruct the event. And we can say one of the black holes weighed this much mm -hmm. and the other one weighed this much. So that's also amazing that they could do that. But there's a mystery that's starting to be brought forward by the, the LIGO team, which is that they've started detecting black holes with masses that we don't expect to exist. So black holes, you think they can be a wide range of masses. Usually you think a black hole is formed from the death of a star mm -hmm. and the guts of the star collapse under its own gravitational weight and then it forms this black hole that nothing can escape from. 
but there's actually a range of masses. So if you have a black hole that weighs about 100 times the mass of the sun, from a theoretical perspective, it's impossible to form one of these black holes because there are other processes that take place in the star that get rid of all the extra mass before it collapses into a black hole. And so with the LIGO team starting to detect black holes that are in this weird mass range that shouldn't have been able to be formed by the normal process, which is a star collapsing, it's interesting to consider alternative ways in which you could form black holes with this type of a mass. And so that's, I've got papers all around me right now with uh, <laughs> random math trying to compute this today. And so these cosmic strings that I mentioned to you before, they have their own gravitational field Okay. And they've existed for a very long time. Stars didn't form until maybe 10 billion years ago. Stars formed. So that still sounds like a long time. Right. But for like three or four billion years in the universe, there were no stars. Yeah, exactly. And so a solution to that problem can be if cosmic strings existed, they would have existed for a long time, for almost the entire age of the universe, based on our current observations. And this gives them a lot more time to accrete and uh, suck mass onto the string itself in which case it can potentially collapse into a black hole. And those black holes, which are not formed by the death of a star, but really just from the collapse of matter into this exotic object known as a cosmic string, would be able to get up to masses of, say, 100 times the mass of the sun without any complications, unlike the stellar model. So that's uh, one of the projects that I've been working on. I thought that black holes can also kind of accrete matter they can pull matter from around them so is it not possible that over time a black hole that collapsed and had a certain mass then accumulated enough mass to make it look like it would have the kind of mass you'd see after a much larger star had collapsed yeah i mean that's a very good question the first part the answer is yes of course when black holes exist they they do continuously grow as things fall into them but many models have been made that essentially show that the amount of matter that you would need to accrete into this black hole is just too much. You wouldn't be able to actually get, you know, say 40 suns to fall into a black hole mm -hmm. and then have that black hole form, emerge with another black hole that is also spinning around it. So I would say that that is more difficult. But another idea that people are considering that's more within the realm of physics that we can all agree on is a couple of black holes that maybe weighed 40 sun masses or 50 sun masses each may have merged with each other earlier on. And so the two black holes put together would then weigh 100 solar masses after that merger event. And then we, what we see is that the second merger that this black mm -hmm. hole group would come into. Two black holes merge and then that merged black hole merges with yeah, another exactly. black hole. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's just a big tree of uh, complicated right. astrophysics. I'm curious to know how far we can push the analogy of strings. I know physicists love to use funky words. So when we have these mergings of black holes and they spin around each other, like do we get knots in the cosmic string? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and what would that even be, right? Right. So it turns out that we don't, which is for the best because the model is complicated enough, I would say. Okay. But uh, what ends up happening usually is when these cosmic strings intersect with each other, so if they hit each other or they hit another string, you would think maybe a knot could form. But what actually ends up happening is the string kind of disconnects from its other partner and forms like a new string. And so wherever you think there would be a knot, it kind of just disconnects and then opens up. So it's almost like if you were trying to tie your shoes, but every time that you actually put the 
string around to make a knot, it just went straight through it. It's like it didn't even exist in the first place. And so when this happens, some energy can be released. But these events in general are thought to be very, very rare in the late universe today because space is huge, right? <laughs> like there's a lot of space mm -hmm. between everything. Right. And so these intersection events would be very, very rare today for us to be witnessing. But in the early universe, it's possible. So these strings then are almost in a straight line kind of? They're not in a straight line. They can form loops with each other. So you can have strings that are long and straight that go through the entire universe. Uh -huh. And people think that outside of our observable universe, they keep going. Don't ask me what happens out there because physicists can never know the answer. That's where they all start making knots. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the knot zone. Every knot is another universe. Exactly. It's for a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> but they can form loops with each other. And so you can have these kind of rings, these really just these rings of these cosmic strings that float through galaxies. And those are primarily what we're trying to make predictions on right now to hopefully detect one day. Mm -hmm. And so these are more circular. They can have some other weird kind of substructure on them. They can form cusps and kinks if they have some weird matter in their internal guts. But uh, I don't think we should worry about that too much uh, until we detect the simplest possible case first. Right. It does feel a bit weird that we're discussing something so theoretical and in such a detail. It, they can, it's really making these strings seem very real. But just to be clear, this whole time we're just talking about a theoretical phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. This is something that we haven't detected, we haven't seen. And that's where most of the business of early universe cosmology is, is interested in doing is saying, well, what if this exists? What would it do? How would it screw up the universe that we see it today? Mm -hmm. And if it screws it up in a horrible way that we don't see, then it's a bad theory and we reject it. But if it seems plausible, like it, it doesn't destroy too many of the beautiful things we see with our telescopes now, and potentially provides an interesting way to detect these new objects, then that's a good theory. That's a theory that can be tested mm -hmm. and uh, maybe one day ruled in or ruled out. Okay, fair enough. I'm curious to know if you think or know that the theory of cosmic strings was maybe born out of this frenzy of the idea of strings. Because from what I've gathered, cosmic strings and string theory are actually very different. Yeah. The, the cosmic strings we've been talking about aren't actually the strings we talk about in string theory. From what right. I know, the strings in string theory are very small. And you're talking about something that might even extend outside the universe. So clearly they're different. But again, because we really like to hang on to these fun names that are easy to imagine, like a cosmic string, can we really think of it as a string? And is this really just the fact that we really like string theory, so we want to call other things <laughs> strings? Yeah, so I mean, I would say in, in physics, we're very bad at naming things. But... Generally, anytime we have an object that is mostly one-dimensional, we call it a string. Mm -hmm. So a particle is what we would call zero-dimensional because it doesn't have any length in space. It's just a point. String theory we call string theory because what it does is it says, well, maybe if we look close enough, these point particles aren't just points after all. They're extended in one direction, and that is what makes it a string. In the case of cosmology, there is obviously some borrowed motivation. I mean... You know, my supervisor has a, a model of the beginning of the universe that is from like real string theory, not these cosmic strings. So there's obviously influence in there. But in cosmology, we classify different types of defects by their dimension. And so one-dimensional defects are what we call cosmic strings. And they're strings only in the sense that they only extend in one dimension. I mean, they look like a shoelace. Mm -hmm. There are other defects that people have talked about before that can be two-dimensional. 
these would be kind of like sheets or walls that would go through galaxies and those don't exist we have good reason to believe they don't exist oh great but those are called domain walls because we're not good at naming things <laughs> but they don't exist so we don't even need to worry about them i mean you don't need to worry about them now but maybe they existed for a very short period of time back when i'm interested in in the universe so oh, i still okay. get to think about them a little bit i like this recurring theme of the early universe not only being interesting but also just being very very different and being a host to different kinds of structures and objects that we don't see anymore. Yeah, exactly. Forces that all unify. <laughs> it's a great place to go if you're bored. Yeah, it's with, a good vacation uh, spot. <laughs> I mean, you can't do much vacationing with COVID, right? So It's true. This is, this is the best we got. <laughs> you wouldn't want to go visit the early universe and come back with a $1,000 fine. <laughs> that would be no fun. Wow. Gotta love this universe, eh? It's the only one we got. So in the introduction, you mentioned that you're doing some research on dark matter. We don't need to get into a whole big thing about dark matter, but I'm curious to know if part of the theory of cosmic strings actually accounts for all of this extra mass we find lying around the universe or these this extra gravitational force that's pulling everything around. Are cosmic strings potentially one of the repositories of this extra matter? Yeah, actually, historically, that's an important point. Back in the 90s, our theories of dark matter were, were less well understood, and people did consider cosmic strings as being potential seeds for structure, which is another way of saying, you know, dark matter that gives you this initial gravitational force. At this point, it's not likely that the cosmic strings themselves can be the dark matter. Mm -hmm. However, cosmic strings can, can sometimes form black holes, which then can be a component of dark matter that we're, we're currently searching for. And this is, these are active areas of research uh, as well. That actually leads me into another question about the future of cosmology. I know we've spoken a lot about the early universe, and so to speak about the future of cosmology is just to speak about what we'll know more about the history of the universe. But is there an overarching goal right now in cosmology, some massive question we're trying to answer? We're kind of a little bit lost, I think. It's cosmology as a whole is a little bit lost, because in the past, we've had a lot of really great theories and not a whole lot of data, not a whole lot of experiments that have been able to, to detect whether these theories are right or wrong. But in the past 20 or 30 years, we've entered what people have called a precision age of cosmology. We have so many great telescopes taking so much useful and important data that both rules models out and is supposed to point us in a direction as to what is actually happening on the grand scale of the universe. But the theory hasn't been able to offer a way to give a good testable prediction in terms of the main questions. I mean, you talk about big questions in cosmology. We have a universe that's made up of 5% stuff that we see, you and me and stars. That only makes up 5% of the total energy of the universe. 25% of that is, is dark matter, which we know nothing about. Um, we know a lot more about what it's not just based on the fact that these right. experiments have detected literally nothing aside from the gravitational field that, that we see in galaxies. But it's definitely there, and we have no idea what it is. And then there's dark energy, which makes up the other 70%. Those are clearly the two biggest mysteries. I mean, I say we know nothing about dark matter. We know less about dark energy than we know about dark matter. So I don't know if you can know negative about something, but that's, <laughs> that's what it feels like. It's just an infinite regression of lack of knowledge. Exactly. <laughs> towards nothingness. And people are, are trying in a lot of different directions to get a hint as to what the nature of this mysterious dark energy is that's causing the universe to expand faster and faster and faster. I mean, it, it is truly 
truly mysterious. There have been many proposals, but none of them have, have stood the test of time in a way that is convincing. People have favorite models, but we have no idea. <laughs> and I think personally, mm -hmm. the answer is most likely going to come from understandings in other areas of, of physics. So like we talked about mm -hmm. earlier, um, understanding physics at the highest energy scales. Sometimes you get these weird new particles that exist. Sometimes the universe seems to follow slightly different laws of mathematics that we, you know, it's not intuitive that that's how things should be when we're just living here on Earth. But the, the ideas that I see just are so random. They come from all kinds of different directions. And cosmology in general on those big questions is really scattered. We're just fumbling in the dark. And that's exciting. But at the same time, it's frustrating when everything turns out to be wrong in some way. But that's science. Yeah, it's, it's uh, maybe bittersweet because there's just this enormous sea of data to sift through. So it isn't like there's a lack of information. It's just parsing that information that's really, really tough. And I like how you mentioned also how people have their like favorite theories. Just kind of makes it seem like there's an emotional component there. Like when you when you really don't know, you just hang on to whatever your gut's yeah, exactly. telling you, which is definitely not how science <laughs> operates. So this brings me to the final question of today's episode. Thank you so much, by the way, for being no on the show. This was great. Truly, truly a dream come true. This is more of, a, I guess, a thought experiment. I want you to imagine yourself standing at the foot of a thousand-person auditorium, packed to the brim, all eyes on you. What do you tell the audience? Um, we don't know anything. But that's the way we like it. I mean, it, that's the, the, the thrill of the hunt. The nature of the discovery is, is what we're chasing. I mean, if I, I mean, I guess like that's, that's a very interesting, broad question. If I was standing there, I would have to say, you know, we know more and we know less than we ever did before. And that's what makes these mysteries so exciting to continue chasing. Uh, and so we shouldn't give up. We have more and more of this pristine data coming back as the years go on. That's not going to slow down. Experimentalists and observational cosmologists are busy doing their jobs. And so it's up to theorists to try and make sense of some of it. Uh, so we need to do our jobs. And there's, there's a lot of work ahead. So it's a great time to get into the field if it's something that you're interested in potentially pursuing as a career. But more than that, just from a philosophical standpoint, this is stuff that everybody can have a feeling for. Everybody likes to think about where we came from. Mm -hmm. That's what drove me from being a, a simple 10-year-old kid wondering where we came from to someone who's actually trying and failing to figure it out um, are these questions. And we can all have an opinion on them. We're all going to be wrong, probably. But people should stay interested and people should continue communicating the knowledge that we're trying to acquire from the scientific world down into the into the regular world as well. There's so many great discoveries that can be appreciated by everybody. Awesome. I'd like to think that, that one of the main differences between the 10-year-old you and the current you is that now you have a much better idea of what you don't know. True, and I have a beard now, so. And you have a beard. Congratulations <laughs> for that. I'm still waiting for Thank my you. <laughs> Amazon Express shipping has not been doing what it's supposed to. Awesome. Bryce, this was super great. I would love to have you back on the show at some point in the future or in the past. I don't know. Is time linear? That will be a discussion for next time. So have an awesome rest of your afternoon. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. 
Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.